0: You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey.
1: No company was working on developing an aging drug actually for aging. Fundamentally, I think if you want to have a drug that's targeting aging, to tell if it works or not, you need to test it for aging, not test it for another disease that may or may not have completely different disease processes. So I got obsessed, like, how could you do this? How could we get the first ever drug approved? On the label, it's not for any specific indication, or disease class, it's for pathological
0: aging itself. That was Celine Haliwa, who is working on creating drugs to increase the lifespan of humans' best friend. Yep, canine longevity. She talked with Fierce's Heather Landy about how her research can improve the human lifespan as well. Stay with us, later we'll hear more of that conversation. But first up, let's talk about the benefits and challenges of direct contracting and purchase alliances. Millions of Americans get their health insurance through their employer. With health spending rising each year, covering benefits for workers and their dependents has gotten enormously costly for employers, an estimated $950 billion a year. While a 2021 Kaiser Family Foundation survey found that executives across nearly 90% of large employers believe that the cost of providing health benefits to employees will become unsustainable in the next 5 to 10 years. Most believe the government will need to intervene to provide coverage and contain costs. In an effort to take back some control, a growing number of employers are becoming self-insured, meaning they, not a payer, are on the hook for workers' medical bills, Advocates argue this approach is an incentive to negotiate the best rates and keep quality of care high for employees. Purchasers Business Group on Health is a nonprofit that represents dozens of self insured employers that collectively spend $350 billion annually on more than 21 million Americans. President and CEO Elizabeth Mitchell sat down with Anastasia Gladkowskia to talk about insurance coverage and the creative ways employers are trying to improve costs and care for their workers. Here they are.
2: Elizabeth, it's great to meet you, and thank you so much for making the time.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: I'm wondering about the pandemic and um, health care costs. Everything is top of mind. And I'm wondering how that has impacted the way that your members are thinking about um, coverage and, and buying benefits for, for employees.
3: Well. Our members have been committed to uh, purchasing top quality, high value health care for their employees um, for as long as they <laughs> have offered these benefit programs. That has been a, a long-standing goal. Um, the employers and purchasers who join PBGH do so because they are committed to that and they look to learn from their peers and uh, other innovators in the industry how to do that so nothing has really changed post-pandemic other than their urgency because what we are seeing is real crises in what matters to employers and employees in terms of access in terms of quality in terms of affordability things are really going in the wrong direction Um, So despite their and our best efforts, it is harder and harder to get top quality care for employees and their families, despite having very good coverage.
2: Hmm. Okay, interesting. So the pandemic itself hasn't really changed anything in terms of the way that employers want to deliver this coverage, but there is more of an urgency now around um, really meeting employees' needs and, and demands.
3: Yeah, what we saw was... I think um, sort of the pre-existing conditions in the system, it really just exposed how hard it is to access primary care and it exposed the inequities that uh, we're seeing in primary care and maternal health. All of the failings of the system were really just, um, I think, clarified and amplified. So it has really caused our members to double down on their uh, priorities and initiatives. I would say some innovations that occurred through the pandemic are being sustained and supported, like telehealth, like um, online access to mental health care, as an example. That really grew, and that is something that they are looking to continue
2: hmm Okay. Interesting. And you've said in the past that um, your members are increasingly looking for uh, to direct contracting and to investing in primary care, behavioral health, social needs, this kind of integrated model. Um, and I'm wondering, in practice, what what does that look like? like what do those investments look like? Is it a matter of um, contracting with all of these different organizations to make sure that it's uh, capturing the entire care continuum? Or um, is it some type of other investment?
3: Well, historically, jumbo employers have relied heavily on their health plans to provide these benefits. And what is increasingly clear is that they are not investing in a way that aligns with employer priorities. So We collect data on behalf of about 30 of our members from the health plans on some of their key priorities, like investment in primary care, like investment in integrated mental health. And we're just seeing pretty dismal numbers. And even though primary care is a priority for our members, we are seeing declines in percentages of spend on primary care. So it, there's just a disconnect, and they're realizing that these actors who they thought were working on their behalf really aren't achieving their aims. So many of our members have been going direct for years. About 20% of our members have had direct contracts you know, for decades, but they're trying to really escalate um, the, how they're doing that across regions and across members. Because what we're seeing is those who have created direct relationships, even if it's just in their market, not only have better outcomes and better access, but they are seeing savings of 10 to 30%. So Mm -hmm. they are realizing that they can get better care at a lower cost by going direct in many cases. And so they're asking us to help them scale that. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I could see that. And how how does that work? I mean, um, are providers, hospitals, especially
3: open to those conversations? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, It is not always well received, um, but the partnerships that are created tend to be really valued. So as an example, one of our members did a direct partnership in Southern California with a health system around maternity care. That has been a really rewarding relationship where the providers got to understand really directly what the employer was looking for. Um, And they were able to implement a new payment approach that was more reflective of employee values. Um, So the partnerships that develop are quite robust but it is disruptive (laughs) for those who may not be selected. So as an example, another of our members is doing a direct partnership in Mesa, Arizona right now, where they selected a priority partner who met our quality standards. And it is causing some tension in the market because not everyone was selected, but our members would welcome more and more uh, providers into these arrangements, but it really depends on their readiness to meet the quality standards that our members have identified. So, we're trying to really clarify what it is employers want, and then help create and enable those partnerships.
2: Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, gotcha. And then in terms of um, price transparency data, um, you know that data has potentially armed some employers to to go back to providers and try to renegotiate certain rates, um, I would imagine that the payer market is not really happy about that. So I'm wondering how you have navigated any tension uh, in that dynamic that has developed as your members try to uh, directly contract with hospitals.
3: Well, I think as this data becomes more and more available and usable, it just exposes the deep flaws in the current system because it is incredibly clear to our members that they are not getting good rates uh, for the most part, (laughs) but it is very difficult to use that data. It's not in a format that is easily accessible, but our members are committed to to leveraging it as it becomes available. And we're having some members really just go out with what they have now, what they can access, and comparing what's published as a, as a rate to maybe what they're paying in their claims. And they are realizing they are overpaying fairly dramatically. <laughs> so, in some cases, our members are going directly to the hospital and saying, you know, wait a minute, why are we being charged this much? Let's, re- let's revisit this and in some cases are getting money back from the hospitals. Now, these these are early examples from early adopters, but it is creating considerable tension because the health plans are coming back to their employers saying, these employers saying, don't do this. Mm -hmm. It is undermining our negotiated rates. (laughs) So employers are being told by carriers not to negotiate a better rate, even Mm -hmm. though they are self-insured and spending their money. So this is going to create, I think, a lot of disruption in the market.
2: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, you've mentioned quality standards um, and how, you know, your members identify their needs, have certain quality standards, look for partners that can meet those. Um, and you alluded to this in, in the Fortune panel a while back that, you um, when you're working with payers, sometimes they want to use their own quality metrics instead of the ones that hypothetically an employer has. So I'm wondering like what the implications and differences are there um, having to use the metrics that a plan offers versus what an employer has identified.
3: Yeah, this has been a long standing problem in the industry. And when every health plan uses a slightly different measure for uh, diabetes or whatever it creates so much administrative burden on physicians who have to you know complete all these forms and really just report in multiple different ways but not in ways that really differentiate value so what our members have done over the last two or three years is really just come to consensus on a standard set of quality metrics. We did that for primary care. We've just done it for maternity care. We will be doing it for other areas. Because members are our employer members are quite clear on what they want to purchase. And so they are just identifying a reasonable, evidence-based set of measures that will demonstrate that. And then asking their carriers to use this measure set so that there is a common signal, there's reduced administrative waste, and really just making it easier for their provider partners to, A, focus on practicing medicine, and B, just reporting on what matters. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's presumably how your members hold these partners accountable for better okay. outcomes.
3: Exactly. And we our members have been very clear. They are willing to pay and they do pay <laughs> for high value care, but they want to know they're getting it. They want to know that patient outcomes are improving. They want to know that they have access when they need it and their experience is good. And what we have also seen over years and you know, lots of evidence is that better care actually costs less. When you get employees and their families into high value integrated primary care where their needs are managed and met, total cost actually goes down. They're not mm-hmm. having unnecessary procedures, are going to specialists unnecessarily, are going to low quality providers. So they know that if they invest effectively, total cost goes down while health outcomes and experience improve.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And I saw a stat on on your site, on your organization's site, that um, you were able to reduce premiums by 10% using joint purchasing. Um, and I'm wondering if that's kind of maybe the way of the future. Um, can you talk about the bargaining power that, that might be inherent to that approach?
3: Yeah, it's back to the fr- future because PBGH did that over 20 years ago. Um, it predates me. And they they came together in the Bay Area and basically went to the market together and were able to reduce their premiums by 10%. So it can be done. And what's happening now is they are rethinking how can they collectively move the market. Again, we're extremely careful about antitrust, about sharing information we're not supposed to, but employers are the ones left paying the bills. That money is coming out of their business, it's coming out of paychecks, it's coming out of family budgets. They have an obligation to ensure that they are only paying fairly for effective care. They take that seriously. That is also now even more in focus with the passage of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 that really focuses on their fiduciary obligations. So they are increasingly taking the the leadership role in making sure that they are only buying the highest value care and doing that together can really make a difference in the market because not everybody is excited about this change there are plenty of um folks in the industry who are very happy with the status quo and frankly they have the incentive to keep costs where they are or higher so employers who are paying for this and families who are paying for this really have to take on even more of a leadership role to change the trajectory.
2: Hmm. Okay. And you mentioned the Consolidated Appropriations Act, and I wanted to just um, talk about that a little bit. I mean, how is that potentially going to help employers in this um, in this area?
3: Well, there's a lot to the CAA, um, but essentially, it is creating increased focus on the fiduciary obligations of self-insured employers to pay for high-value care. and They have always been fiduciaries, but with the newly available transparent data, they're really more obligated to use that data and to verify that they are (laughs) paying for high-quality cost-effective care. The other thing that's embedded in the CAA is an obligation to ensure that their vendors and partners are not conflicted. In fact, they are directed to essentially audit these partners, like health plans, like PBMs, like consultants, and confirm that they are not conflicted and attest to that fact. And then if they find that they are conflicted, they are required to terminate them within 90 days. I do not know how this is going to play out in practice, because when you think about it, if they have to audit a PBM, which frankly <laughs> is remarkably difficult because PBMs <laughs> won't even give them the data they need to do this, despite <laughs> their best efforts, and then attest that there's no conflict of interest, um, that that's going to be increasingly challenging. So that's a really important dynamic uh, being introduced to the market, they have to verify that, as an example, their consultants are actually acting on behalf of the employer and their employees and not, say, being paid by the vendors Mm -hmm. they're representing. And I think you're gonna see a lot um, of surprising dynamics exposed, which will, I believe, influence employer choices.
2: Hmm, fascinating. So, and that kind of brings me to my next question is, to what extent does policy and regulation need to play a role in helping to guide the future of benefits and lower healthcare costs?
3: Policy change is critical. We are very active in public policy, both federally and in many states. Um, we work on behalf of em- employers and purchasers, but even with the successes that we are having, so we were... Um, we testified in favor of the lower health cost act. We worked in favor of the surprise billing changes and we supported the transparency rules. So we felt good about some of the progress we're making. And then you start to see the immediate reaction of the industry. So as an example, the, the surprise billing um, policies that were changed are being challenged in court. We, the industry is creating these absurd bureaucratic hurdles to actually achieving the aims. Um, So there is this industry reaction that goes against the intent and aims of the legislation that we supported. Another good example is um, there are gag clauses that are now prohibited in payer contracting. And so what we're seeing is now the health plans are putting in NDAs that completely mirror Mm. gag clauses they were supposed to take out. So it is just exposing to purchasers that this may not be in their interest and they're going to have to find new ways of purchasing.
2: Mm Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that um, that's a great place for us to stop this conversation for now, but we'll certainly be um, watching this closely and really appreciate your insights um, today.
3: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, before we continue, I just want to remind everyone that Monday is Juneteenth, and everyone here at Fierce will be taking the day off to celebrate and be thankful, and you should too. So Next week, I'll replay some of our favorite segments, and then look for a fresh new episode of Podnosis the following week on June 28th. Next up, we'll get to that talk about canine longevity. But before we continue, a word from our sponsor. City National Bank offers the best of both worlds. Their clients benefit from personalized attention and flexible solutions without sacrificing access to the global scale, support, and resources needed to grow in the healthcare industry. If you're in the business of facilitating patient care or finding cures, they're committed to working with and for you every step of the way. City National, your success is their business. Visit cnb.com healthcare to learn more today. Dogs are our best friends. So, how can we help them live longer? Biotech founder Celine Haliwa is working on a fountain of youth for dogs, and she hopes to expand that research into improving the human lifespan. Haliwa founded the biotech Loyal in 2019 with the goal of developing drugs to slow aging in dogs and extend their healthy lifespans. In March, Loyal announced that it received a protocol concurrence from the FDA. For a clinical trial to test out one of the longevity drugs that it's developed for canines. If the trial is a success, the drug could hit the market as soon as 2025. But more broadly, Haliwa believes that if the drug is successful, it could work on humans too. So let's find out more. Here is Heather Landy with Celine Haliwa.
4: Hi, Celine. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to chat with you about Loyal and your work to help man's best friend live longer.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
4: So you were obviously interested in studying lifespan and longevity, but why start with canines?
1: When we were at Longevity Fund, we were obviously working in human therapeutics. Um, The idea was to fund and support companies that were developing drugs that were targeting these Seemingly conserved or semi conserved mechanisms and degradation pathways by which our, our bodies age over time that are believed to be precursors to classical age related diseases. But I got frustrated because every company at that time that pitched us had a very similar kind of high level narrative. So, oh, we have this drug, um, you know, in mice, it extends lifespan and health span significantly, it improves. Uh, reduces the risk of developing, you know, certain age-related diseases. But you know, slide four, FDA is evil. Aging isn't a disease. You can't develop it for, you know, aging or health span or lifespan itself. So instead, we're going to take this aging drug and develop it for, you know, this esoteric, monogenic, pediatric disorder that isn't really aging at all, but happens to be related mechanistically. Um, but don't worry, at some point we'll be able to show that it also also impacts natural aging. But you know on slide 10, what's their uh, exit plan is to get acquired by Pfizer by Phase 3. And so I just got um, frustrated that no company was working on developing an aging drug actually for aging, and they were all, of course all working on very worthy and important biological problems and disease areas but fundamentally i think if you want to have a drug that's targeting aging it to tell if it works or not you need to test it for aging not test it for another disease that may or may not have completely different disease processes so i got obsessed like how could you do this how could we get the first ever drug approved we're on the label it's not for any specific indication um or disease class it's for you know pathological aging itself it's for extending healthy lifespan it's for maintaining a certain quality of life bar uh long story short for um reasons that i'm I'm happy to go into but primarily have to do with money and logistics and operational challenges of extending human lifespan um i realized that i couldn't really do it with the resources i had in people but that you could do it in dogs and this idea that you could develop the first ever drug for lifespan extension in dogs um and that that would be um Both a fantastic uh, pharmaceutical product, fantastic commercial product, a fantastic company, but also anything we do in dogs is very relevant to going back to human aging because we have this unique co-evolutionary relationship with dogs. It's shared an environment with dogs for tens of thousands of years. They develop the same age-related diseases we do at approximately the same time in their lifespan. Um, And so something that works for dog aging is not one-to-one working in a human. There is no perfect model organism, unfortunately. But it's much more likely that if you show efficacy in a companion dog for reducing the risk of, let's say, um, dementia, that that biology is also relevant to humans. Um, so I kind of became obsessed with the idea. I never thought I'd start a company. Um, but it just became this earworm, <laughs> so to speak. And I eventually started incorporated at end of 2019 raised a a seed round on a very ugly pitch deck and this idea.
4: And we've been going since then. Okay. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. And when I chatted with you back in March at South by Southwest, um, Loyal had some really exciting news as its longevity clinical study got FDA approval. So what is Mm -hmm. so novel about this clinical study? Um, You know, why haven't we, you mentioned, why haven't we seen more clinical studies focus on anti-aging drugs?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the Really special thing about what we did is that we received protocol concurrence, Mm -hmm. uh, which means the FDA has reviewed very in depth our uh, clinical study design. And that if our study um, shows statistical efficacy and, of course, doesn't have some, you know, crazy adverse event turning the dogs green or whatever, that we will receive (laughs) market approval um, for the for the drug. Uh, but importantly, it's market approval for lifespan and health span extension. Mm-hmm. So it's a longevity study where the goal is to show extension of life, um, specifically reduction of mortality risk, and extension of quality of life in those years uh, without any specific disease state. It's not, you know, extension of lifespan or health span in you know, cancer patients treated with chemotherapy that that's uh, a relatively common study design what it is it's just older but otherwise non specific disease diagnosed dogs living longer than they would have otherwise the other reason it was so important is that we had to completely design this study not completely but largely design this study from from scratch right nobody has done a pivotal lifespan and health span extension study before um, as far as I know, nobody's gone to the FDA and tried to get pro, uh, concurrence for a pivotal lifespan and health span extension study. And so we really, from, there's so many sci- uh, biological considerations, but also operational considerations when you're running such a large and long study that's capturing lots of different endpoints that are not just, you know, does the tumor uh, continue growing or shrink or endostasis? Um, so it was, you know, a year and a half of work to get Mm -hmm. here and, and we got it and it was, you know, one of the proudest achievements of the company to date.
4: Right. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about the study. You know, how many dogs will be involved? How long will it go on? Um, how will you study the effects and then when do you expect a drug to go to market?
1: Yeah. So the study is looking at, so lifespan is actually a fantastic endpoint. Uh, it's binary, it's alive, dead. The challenge of lifespan is that it takes a while. I mean, it's kind of the ultimate endpoint in that way too. Um, And also, especially in dogs, that there's lots of things that can impact lifespan that don't have to do with um, the dog's disease state. Uh, For example, voluntary euthanasia is something that you have to consider or just a dog getting hit by a car or anything like that. And so you have to design a study that is insulated from the randomness and the variability that you'll have in, um, in what determines end of lifespan uh, for, for, for a companion dog so that you're able to capture the hopeful signal of on average, even though, you know, however many dogs you know run away or get hit by a car or whatever, you're still seeing that reduction in mortality risk in the treated dogs, if there is one there. Um, so that's one of the primary drivers of why the study is so large. The second is looking at quality of life. So you, we don't want to just extend lifespan, but then have a bunch of you know geriatric, <laughs> geriatric dogs. What people really want when they say dog lifespan extension and dog longevity is they want their dog being healthier longer. They want those years where the dog is excited to see them and is at the dog park and playing chase to be longer than they currently mm. are. And so the, the, the other key thing that we're looking at is quality of life. And quality of life is very hard to measure.
0: Um, mm. So
1: there are, um, we end up using uh, clinically validated tools that look at both pet parent perceived quality of life, which is very important because fundamentally it's a pet parent who uh, buys a drug, is kind of the ultimate customer, um, but also, of course, perceives whether the drug is working or not. So it's a measure of whether the pet parent uh, assesses their dog of being um, healthier or not healthier in certain different domains. Uh, and then also vet reported health span, which is more around disease diagnoses that the dog may or may not receive, um, challenges the dog has, etc. cetera. Um, it's not a perfect way to quantify it, but it is a way to quantify it. Okay.
4: Um, So if the study is successful and the drug works as intended, what could this mean for me as a pet parent and for my dog, Kylie? Um, You know, will she live 10 years longer? No. Um, (laughs) Well, maybe, but not making that claim.
1: No. So really what we are, first and foremost, what we're trying to do is create a class of drug that doesn't Exist currently. Um, clinically, it doesn't exist on the market. So, just this idea that a drug can be FDA approved, I and mean, we're not doing supplements. Um, I think there are probably supplements that uh, could show efficacy for lifespan and extension in dogs, but it was actually incredibly important to us as a company um, and as a scientific organization to go for the highest, uh, one of the highest scientific quality bars in the world to prove objectively that the drug is doing the thing that we say it's doing or not doing it and it's it's on a market right like that that kind of objective lens was very critical because we're bringing something hopefully to market that has never existed before which is a drug that's intended for somebody to give to their already relatively healthy animal to keep that animal healthy longer and so the long-term vision is you know just like how, you know, humans take statins to reduce risk of future, um, cardiovascular disease, or people give their dogs heartworm preventative to reduce the risk of a dog getting heartworm later in life. Can this become a a standard too where a large portion of the canine population and maybe the human population one day is on a daily, um, or deductible safe drug that's widely accessible that reduces the risk of future age related disease that reduces the risk of um, age-related decline and that reduces the risk of a patient uh, having uh, the most negative consequences of aging so early on. And so, I again, I, this is not a mortality drug. I, that's not where we started. Really, everything we've done has been optimized around clearing a regulatory path, bringing something to market that's fundamentally extremely safe that is so key for anything preventative. We we learned that with a lot of things, including the COVID vaccine, and that has a very strong evidence basis behind it. That um, it could work from everything we know.
4: Okay. Yes, I'm sure this could really um, kind of open up the door for a lot of buzz about, you know, is this the fountain of youth? <laughs> but there are no, potentially there not. are implications. <laughs> <laughs> but there are there are potentially implications for human health and longevity, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so
1: one of the other reasons, so dogs were a great place to start for a multitude of reasons. Dogs are such an excellent model of human aging and age-related disease. Um, Aging and age-related diseases are extremely hard to model in the lab because they fundamentally develop over time, right? We have these kind of baskets of diagnoses of when you have clinically um, significant Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cancer or osteoarthritis. But it's not like you are healthy one day and then you binary shift into having Parkinson's. You are developing the predecessors of this disease over potentially decades. A dog develops dementia like we do. It develops dementia over time um a dog develops cancer like we do my my poor previous puppy uh wolfie uh, a husky died of breast cancer um oh. naturally occurring breast cancer yeah. um, and so if a drug is able to show some degree of efficacy on the very complex age-related diseases that dogs get that they develop over time that they develop naturally uh again it's not one to one to a human nothing is one to one to a human but it's much more compelling data that the drug would be uh, potentially effective in human dementia also. Um, and then the last thing on dogs is that they've co-evolved with us, right? So aging env- environmental factors like pollution, et cetera, are very, very relevant to accumulation of age-related damage and decline. And dogs, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure Kylie lives with you, Della lived with me. She literally slept with me last night. Um, so these factors that we may not understand currently are still represented in the dog.
4: Right. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so Loyal has raised um, what you've publicly disclosed so far. You've raised $58 million so far in mm-hmm. four years from big name investors. Um, so is there a lot of excitement around the aging field? Or I mean, there's there's also some fringe companies out there, right? Some companies working on some fringe things. So is there also some skepticism that you've had to overcome as you've kind of pitched your idea? Um, A ton of skepticism.
1: And it, a lot of that is uh, rooted in what I would call, well, some of it's just like if you do something new and different and first, obviously, people are skeptical. Bio is a very skeptical. Healthcare is a very skeptical industry, as it should be. It's really hard to do anything here. Um. But also because the aging industry has um, branded itself as immortality, uh, thousand-year lifespans. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the magical solution. Uh, It's just, you know, this one pill type of BS. That's been Mm -hmm. happening for thousands of years. It's not new to now. They just have social media that are louder. Yeah. Um, And so that was one of the reasons why, you know, we – wanted to do the fda approval path um because we will, we very explicitly want to show that you can uh get a drug approved for aging that hits the highest quality bars scientific integrity bars scientific quality bars research bars everything and that it's kind of a drug like anything else like one of my riffs is that aging should be boring right mm-hmm. like people have leaned on this crazy story of you know, immortality or whatever. But fundamentally, an aging drug is just a preventative medicine for multiple diseases instead of one disease like a statin is or one disease class like a statin is. Um, It's kind of a pretty dull, actually. Um, And so I'm hoping that as, you know, we get closer to clinic or to market and as others get closer to the clinic and the market and we start actually seeing clinical results that the industry will move from, you know, these crazy ideas to actual pharmaceutical products, which is where it needs to go.
4: Yeah, right. Celine, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been really exciting to learn more about Loyal and um, I'll definitely be keeping track of your company going forward. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Podgnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday morning to Podgnosis, where healthcare is our beat.